welcome to the Madden America podcast, your source for science, psychiatry and social justice. Hello, this is James and welcome to the Madden America podcast. And this week we turn our attention to the licensing of esketamine nasal spray for so-called treatment-resistant depression. Esketamine, under the brand name Spravato, has already been licensed in the US by the Food and Drug Administration and was recently recommended for approval in member states by the European Medicines Agency. Today we are joined by Professor John Reed, who led an effort to raise cautions and concerns regarding the licensing of esketamine for use in the UK. And John joins us from London via Skype. John, welcome. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat for the Madden America podcast again. And we're here today to talk about uh, the UK approval of esketamine nasal spray, uh, which is sold under the name Spravato, I believe, manufactured by Janssen, uh, the pharmaceutical branch of Johnson & Johnson. And Spravato has been approved for use in the US by the Food and Drug Administration and also in Europe by the European Medicines Agency. And it was being considered for approval in the UK for treatment-resistant depression. And I understand that a little while ago, I think it was October, a group of experts, including yourself, wrote to the MHRA to raise concerns about this approval. So I just wondered if we could start by perhaps talking a little bit about that letter and, and what the concerns were and you know how esketamine came to be looked into in the UK. Okay, James. Glad to be here again. Let's just back up a uh a little bit, because um, some of the concerns in that letter were indeed about the research, but many of us have concerns about the basic concept here, because let's be clear what we're talking about. Now, ketamine is a, a, a hallucinogenic street drug. Now, obviously, esketamine or spravato is a, is a variation on that, hopefully with some of the hallucinogenic effects reduced. But uh, nevertheless, that's the, that's the basis of this medicine, although I, I, I do struggle to actually put it in a category of medicine. It's an addictive drug, and more importantly, we many of us see it as in the context of an endless attempts going back, well, centuries really, of trying to establish simplistic, quick fix solutions to complex human problems and human distress. Um, I mean, examples are endless. I mean, uh, three or four hundred years ago, we were standing people next to cannon fire to try and shock them out of their depression. We've had surprise baths. We've had rotating chairs. More recently, we've had electroconvulsive treatment, which, is, of course, is still going on for a couple of thousand people. And this seems to be one more in this endless series of rather facile, superficial attempts to treat some sort of non-existent biological deficit uh, that they've never found. And, and then there's this other, why do we need yet another treatment, given that one in six of us are now prescribed antidepressants every year, and apparently they're completely, wonderfully effective and totally safe, according to the drug companies and, and most biological psychiatrists. Why do, we, why do we need another one? And the answer is, if this is especially for and I love this term, this is for treatment-resistant people, which is the drug company's term for when the drugs don't work. So we have, on the one hand, one in six of us on antidepressants, and they work and they're wonderful, but apparently they don't work, or they don't work for sufficient numbers of people that we need another treatment to treat the people for whom antidepressants don't work. It does feel like just another um, rather 
silly uh, attempt to deal with human distress and, and depression. Ketamine has been a bit of a wonder drug for 10 years. They're using it for all sorts of different things. They, they, one of the most recent things they've tried it on is to add it to electroconvulsive therapy to help, supposedly, to help reduce the cognitive damage done by electroconvulsive therapy, which, of course, most people who use electroconvulsive therapy say doesn't exist. But apparently, if you add ketamine to it, somehow this hallucinogenic drug is going to reduce the cognitive deficits caused by ECT. So there's some, some incredibly problematic thinking behind the whole concept. And then before we get into the actual research, of course, it's going to work. I mean, snorting uh, a drug like ketamine, like taking cocaine, is going to make you feel better. Does that make it a medicine? Uh, does it make it a, a cure or treatment for are people with complex difficulties or that are causing them to feel depressed? I, I, I don't think so. But somehow, the drug companies have managed to persuade some psychiatrists that sniffing uh, this drug is now a medicine rather than uh, things that people do at the weekend for, for a high. And we already know that it's powerfully addictive. There is no dispute about this one. I mean, there's a long debate going on about whether antidepressants are, de are, are dependency forming, can we call them addictive and so forth. And there are two legitimate sides to that debate. There is only one side of, of the addiction debate around ketamine, and it is addictive. So we have that problem as well. So that, that's just by way of background. So the research in the letter. So yes, the, the Food and Drug Administration approved this we'll call it a drug, this drug, uh, this nasal spray, back in uh, January 2019. And yeah, in October the 17th, the European Medicines Agency uh, recommended approval for all the European countries uh, within the EU. And they gave 67 days for all those countries um, to comment. So 12 of us, eight, including eight psychiatrists, wrote saying... And we wrote to the EMA and also, just to bring them into the picture, the MHRA, the Medicines and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency, which is the UK's equivalent of um, the USA's Food and Drug Administration, who were also making submissions to the European Medicines Agency, who were asked for their opinion, and they cleared it, the MHRA. They approved its use during the 67-day period. So we were writing both to the MHRA and to the European Medicines Agency, quote, to express grave concern about the possibility that the dissociative anaesthetic agent and known street drug of abuse, ketamine, might be approved for use in the UK. And in trying to summarise the research, we can go into it in a bit more detail, but we basically said, and again I quote, there have been no trials of the efficacy of esketamine in the medium or long term, uh, in other words, uh, beyond four weeks. The majority of the studies of this drug almost entirely conducted by Janssen, the company attempting to license the drug, are only four weeks in duration. We trust that an evidence-based approach will be taken by you, and therefore that no approval will be granted until multiple independent trials, i.e. not industry-sponsored, of at least a year's duration and preferably longer, have been conducted. So that's a, that's a summary of the research. I think it is worth going into that a little bit more. It's a, it's a bit dry, but it's important to understand the paucity of, of the research on which the FDA, the MHRA and the EMA approved this drug. There have been four studies submitted. Only three of them are about efficacy. All of those were only a four weeks duration. And only one of them found a difference between the drug and placebo. 
This is unheard of, un unprecedented. The FDA always insists on at least two studies showing supremacy over placebo. But here we are in a situation where there's one study of only four weeks duration showing any benefit over placebo. And even then that benefit is, is questionable. Uh, there's a 60 point scale involved. Placebo reduced depression by 17 points on that scale and esketamine reduced depression by 21 points. So it's a four point difference. And the definition for minimal improvement for that scale is seven to nine points. So it was statistically significant, but it did not meet the uh, accepted standard for, quote, minimal improvement. And on that basis, those three agencies, and I'll come back to why those three agencies approved it, but they approved it. And then within the um, those four studies, three on efficacy and one on discontinuation, um, there were six deaths out of about 400, 450 people in the drug groups, no deaths in the placebo groups. Unsurprisingly, Janssen uh, said those deaths had nothing whatsoever to do with the drugs. Uh, one was a motorbike accident 24 hours after the drug was taken. Two are myocardial infractions or heart failure, which is a known effect of esketamine or, or ketamine. And three were suicides within days of trying to come off, starting to come off the medication. That's six out of 451. So one in 75 people died in these studies. And this seemed to cause no alarm whatsoever to any of these agencies who are supposedly acting in the public interest for America, Europe, and the UK. And just to complete the picture, we already know before these studies that ketamine just in, in general can cause irreversible urinary tract damage leading to renal failure and also um, cognitive dysfunction. So it is, to be blunt, bewildering uh, how these agencies could possibly approve this drug on that basis. It's pretty damning, you know, and when I read your letter that you wrote with your colleagues, the combination of the lack of studies, the poor quality of evidence from the studies that were accepted, and the fact that there were question marks around deaths and suicides in the trials, it seemed to me that anybody with any common sense whatsoever would look at that and think this is too risky to try unless more work is done on understanding the effects. You would think so. Um, so maybe this is the right time to try and understand how that could possibly be. I mean, these are not stupid people. These are highly educated experts. But it's a simple explanation but it, and a partial explanation, but I think you always have to follow the money in these situations to, to get some sense of what's going on. So the Food and Drug Administration in the USA has a, has a long record of total enmeshment with the pharmaceutical industry um, for decades. So that's, that's no surprise. I naively thought that in Europe we would have our act more together in terms of independence, and I turned out to be extraordinarily naive as it happens. The European uh, Medicines Agency is 87% funded by the drug industry. Um, by the fees that the companies pay for the assessment of their drugs. And the NHRA in the United Kingdom is 100% funded by the drug companies. And, and just to drill down a bit on that, if you look at each country can send two representatives from their own agency to the European Medicines Agency. Our two representatives, I'm, I'm not going to name them because it's not about individuals, it's a, this is a systemic, huge systemic problem. Both of our representatives are ex-full-time employees of drug companies. 
the EMA did actually uh, get on the phone to me for an hour. Three of their very senior people turned out I was really being managed rather than um, very little information flowed after that phone call. But um, that's that's fair enough. At least they had the courtesy to offer me uh, a phone call as a result of our letter. Um, And I remember the psychiatrist, again, I'm not going to name her, the psychiatrist in charge of their evaluation of esketamine. The only thing that anybody took offence at in the hour-long conversation was when I raised the issue of um, possible bias because of drug company. And she said, that's not, what are you saying? That couldn't possibly be true. Are you saying that professionals can be influenced by drug company money? That's just, there's just no evidence for that. And she was a little bit um, took umbrage of my raising that issue. So I think they genuinely don't get it. They think that um, declaring conflicts of interest has solved the problem. It's a little bit like fessing up to a, a crime and saying, yeah, well, I've, I, I said I've done it, so can I go now? But actually, there's huge evidence showing, I mean, just look at, for instance, uh, studies of drugs conducted by drug companies versus by universe, independent university studies, and there's a significant difference. But anyway, what happened back here in the UK was upsetting because we had written and we uh, on october the 31st as i said with, with eight psychiatrists we got no response whatsoever we were told we would get no response from various people so we, re- we wrote to five branches of the mhra five different email addresses we did occasionally get uh, you will hear within 21 days and no follow-up um, and absolutely no response to our submission about the paucity of the research, no response to our questions about who was on the committee, can we see the minutes of the meetings, what conflicts of interest do any of them have, absolutely no response. They just stonewalled it. And we also know that there were two researchers from King's College London doing the same thing and getting absolutely no response. We know that even Sir Oliver Letwin writing on behalf of the all-party parliamentary group on these issues, did not even get any sort of response from their MHRA. And I, I'm just remembering as I speak, did, did your group not write something as well, James? We did, yeah. So 20 people with lived experience, including myself, wrote two to the MHRA. And like you, we got a an auto reply saying it had been received, but nothing further than that. And, you know, we didn't really expect to, but it's still galling, I think, that there's no, there doesn't seem to be any route into question this process. Yeah, I don't know which is more offensive, um, not responding to senior academics or a representative group of of stakeholders in terms of service use, people using using the drugs. I think it's just there's appalling lack of transparency on a on an organization that is supposed to be working in the public interest. So having having waited over a month, we wrote again because time was running out. You see the 67 day period ended in mid-December. So we wrote on the 29th of November it is incumbent upon the MHRA to exercise their obligation within the permitted 67-day period to raise the various safety and efficacy issues clearly not dealt with in the EMA opinion and insist that the procedure be referred back for further examination. We believe that failure to do this would represent a blatant failure to fulfil its remit to act in the public health interest of the citizens of the UK. I don't know how much clearer you can get than that, and there was absolutely no response. It's just a stonewall. It's not really acceptable. But then again, then you think, well, they already reached a ludicrous decision based on practically no evidence whatsoever. So 
I guess you end up with one of those moments: is is this incompetence or malevolence? Yeah, and, and in a way, it doesn't matter because the outcome is the same. But um, there's something seriously, seriously wrong at the MHRA. Yeah, there does seem to be, and and John, you know, in common with you, I think those of us that contributed to the letter that we sent, I think we felt pretty down in all honesty that you know we hadn't been responded to or, or our concerns heard and you know we assumed that it was just a matter of time before people were starting to be treated in clinics but there's been a development recently hasn't there which i wonder if you could tell us about yes just um just this week nice uh, national institute of clinical health at excellence um which writes guidelines for health treatments and also um, a branch of it evaluates the suitability of drugs for use in the NHS um, has rejected the drug for use in the NHS. At this stage, it's a, it's a recommendation. There's a further consultation period till February 28th, and um, we shall all be submitting to that, and I'm sure the drug companies will be also. But that is a hugely important and uh, laudable response so somewhere in all these systems there is an organization that is willing to take an evidence-based response the fact that they are not drug company funded may have something to do with it you can never you can never be sure but this is a, a major breakthrough I, I have to admit of some surprise to, to most of us who become a little jaded and cynical in, in in this process and many previous processes over the over the years and nice nice as we know has got things woefully wrong in in the past in relation to antidepressants but that's a another story this time they've, they've got it right and they said it was partly because of the cost the cost in america currently is 500 pounds per dose which and you can see why the drug companies are quite excited about this product from a financial point of view um so it was because of cost and because quote-unquote lack of evidence so that is really really surprising and really quite wonderful the, the response from the the usual suspects is is revealing um science media center which always weighs in very quickly with some experts for the media to use so we have paul keedwell from uh, consultant psychiatrist from the Cardiff University saying uh, that many sufferers will be disappointed. I'm not sure what his evidence base for that is. Presumably he's done some survey of thousands of people out there waiting to snort a sketamine. I, I don't know. Um, but he's convinced that many will be uh, disappointed. And we have Samir Johar, who we know from his attempts to minimise uh, the antidepressants withdrawal effects and uh, long-standing sort of difficulties with this particular psychiatrist's objectivity. He, he wrote that, the effort, quote, the efficacy data is actually quite reasonable. And then um, we have a rather interesting response from an organisation called PMAR, Health Economics Market Access and Reimbursement Organization. This person has said it is evident from this initial draft guidance that current NICE technology appraisal processes are not fit for purpose in terms of evaluating innovative technologies for complex mental health conditions. The decision further reinforces the need for reform through the NICE methods review to allow a new generation of innovative treatments to reach patients. So, when you get an organization that finally takes an evidence-based approach, it comes under quite a strong attack from um, biologically oriented psychiatrists and from organizations like uh, HEMA. When you dig a little deeper, HEMA is actually um, an organization within Janssen, the drug company. So good on NICE. Um, they are going to be bombarded with nonsense, um, saying they've got it wrong. 
Um, I hope they will withstand that. And um, February 18th, I think it is, the final decision will be made. But you've got, I mean, there's a lot of people out there uh, batting for this this thing. Um, you've got the, the, the two most um, prominent advocates in the in the UK, Professor Alan Young and Professor Rupert McShane, the Royal College of Psychiatry spokesperson, um, it's worth pointing out, are both in the pay of Janssen. They work for them from time to time on different things. So everywhere you turn, money is speaking, I think, and it is not in the public interest. And it is a great relief that that NICE has taken a stand. Yeah, absolutely. And and John, will you be, will the group that wrote letter be feeding into the consultation process that ends in at the end of February? We certainly will, and uh, we will be repeating the same concerns. But I, I I don't think it'll be new for Nice. I think Nice have understood already the concerns that we have. But we um, will just fulfil our responsibility in the public interest to make sure that we have submitted our, our summary of the of the research and, and how we see it and those some of those broader issues I was talking about earlier. So um, we'll all have to watch this space on February 18th and hope that NICE stands its ground and um, is not bullied into changing its mind by some of these quite powerful organisations. Yeah, and, and as you said yourself, it, it's, it's, it's so important that actually the evidence base should drive this decision, not either the need to save money in the UK NHS or the need to, and desire to make money from the pharmaceuticals point of view. Indeed, I think the cost thing is a reasonable thing. I mean, five hundred pounds, I and mean, it's good. It would have to be, you know, the most effective medicine in the history of medicine to be five hundred pounds a shot. Uh, that's quite a lot of money. So it would have to be, you know, when you do a cost-benefit analysis, um, and there isn't any benefit, it's kind of an easy answer. But five hundred pounds a shot is 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 a lot of money. So I, I think it's fair enough to nice for nice to take cost into consideration. Somewhat, it's unpleasant, but we do have to make choices around what's what's worth spending money on in 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 the NHS, and this one just clearly is not. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, you know, I hope we can. I'm sure we will update listeners come the end of February on, on the final decision. But, you know, as always, I thank you and, and your colleagues for the time and effort to put into this, because I think it's vital to point out the paucity and poor quality of, of evidence for this particular drug. Indeed. And I, I would just like to finish by saying I'm sometimes a bit harsh about psychiatry as, as, a, as a professional as a collective so it's really important to remind listeners that eight of the uh, of the 12 people who wrote this letter were psychiatrists so there are a lot of psychiatrists who who share our concerns about these sorts of drugs or uh, and and these sorts of issues so um i just i just wanted to repeat that and this is a broad broad church from psychiatrists to psychologists to other mental health professionals through people with lived experience like yourself this is a very broad church saying no to this well thank you john and you know as always thank you for taking the time to uh, keep us abreast of these uh, these developments thanks james pleasure well i just want to thank john for updating us and to say that you can find a copy of the letter to the mhra on the post that accompanies this interview on madanamerica.com so as always thank you so much for listening and until next time take care thank you for listening to the madden america podcast visit madanamerica.com for more news views and updates